Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, folklorist Emily Hilliard's new book explores contemporary folk life and Appalachian culture, like the lore behind the West Virginia slaw dog. Incarcerated people in the jail liked slaw on their dogs because they could smuggle in a razor blade in the slaw. We'll also hear about the Asian Appalachian experience from a student filmmaker who was born in China and grew up in Western Maryland. What is it like having these multiple identities of being Asian, Appalachian, and American and not feeling like you belong to all three? And we'll travel back to 2016 and listen to an interview with J.D. Vance. Back then, he was a newly published author promoting his book, Hillbilly Elegy. Now, he's Ohio's newly elected U.S. Senator. People, for very legitimate reasons, frankly, are starting to lose their feeling that the future is going to be better for their children, better for their grandchildren. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Emily Hilliard knows a whole lot about West Virginia hot dogs and independent pro wrestling and the author Breeze DJ Pancake. Emily's a folklorist, and we've talked with her before here on Inside Appalachia. She knows so much about Appalachian culture. Heck, she guided me through some of my early stories here on the show. Now, she's poured a lot of that knowledge into a new book, Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia. Reporter Zach Harold sat down with Emily to talk about it. And, if you know Zach... You won't be surprised to hear, he goes right to hot dogs. Emily Hilliard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about uh, this uh, amazing new book of yours. Thanks so much, Zach. Well, there, there's so much that we could cover. I would like to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, your chapter on hot dogs. Can you tell me about kind of how the craze began? Well, it's kind of linked to industry and immigration and popularization of mass culture, uh, urbanization, and European migration. Um, So there were a lot of instances where um, basically Greek and maybe Italian immigrants were setting up hot dog stands in West Virginia. Um, and mostly that was in major urban centers in industrial areas. And I think that's why we see the hot dog really being popular in West Virginia in the southern coal fields, the northern coal fields, and then industrial cities like, um, you know, the Ohio River towns of Huntington and Parkersburg. But hot dogs really seemed to boom in the 1910s and 1920s in West Virginia. I love the line in the book uh, from a Fairmont newspaper that calls Charleston, quote, one of the greatest places on earth for hot dog eaters. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was amazing to find. Um, I found this, um, well, I guess it was several articles um, about hot dogs in Charleston. And I found there, there were at least um, four hot dog stands in Charleston in the early 1920s, and three of four of them were owned by Greek immigrants. And there was this amazing stat in one of the articles. It said that 22,000 dogs a day were sold out of those four hot dog stands at one point. 
And that is about one for every two residents in Charleston at the time. And then uh, I have this highlighted in my copy. They describe it in a very evocative way, right? Like to, to help people conceptualize how many hot dogs that is. If all the hot dogs consumed in a year in Charleston were strung together, the string could extend to Huntington and back and still have enough left to run down to St. Albans on the one side of the road and back on the other. (laughs) Yeah, and then I think it goes on to say, or it could go all the way to Morgantown. And to return to, to your point, I found it interesting that it was so tied to industry. Because this, I mean, it's cheap, it's portable, right? This is the perfect thing for for people who are, you know, doing shift work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I talked to the descendants of A.J. Valos, um, who was a Greek immigrant born in 1894. And he had actually worked as an indentured servant in the hot dog industry in New York and then moved to Parkersburg and opened the Broadway Sandwich Shop, which is still open Um, He opened that in 1939, and his relatives were saying that they thought that much of the success of his shop was because it was right across the street from the Mountain State Steel Foundries, and it was also close to a high school, so they got students from um, the school coming for a snack or for a meal, and then there were some other um, companies right nearby, too, so factory workers would grab hot dogs. you know, before or after a shift. Reading that section about the Broadway sandwich shop in Parkersburg, I've eaten there. I've had hot dogs there and had no idea of this history of it. That's that's what I love about this book is that it, it does. It really takes things that you think you know and, and explores the story behind it. Let's talk about the the hot dog stand war of 1922 in Fairmont. This was also something I found through looking through historic newspapers. Um, But there was this flurry of activity in the Fairmont papers in 1922. City officials were upset with the clientele that uh, these hot dog stands in Fairmont were attracting. And um, most of that is, you know, seems like racist and classist um, resentment of the immigrant, um, you know, Greek and Italian immigrants who were running these hot dog stands and wagons, and then also the clientele of high school students and workers. Um, and they kind of equate them with like dive bars and beer joints and attest that they are unsavory and um, kind of try to shut down some of these joints. And then there's sort of the counter response of um, someone writing in and saying, maybe the city officials could worry about more important things than just shutting down hot dog stands. Um, and then there's another uh, newsstand owner who writes in, and he is um, incensed that uh, because uh, people had been thinking his newsstand was a hot dog stand. And he writes into the paper to assert that that is simply not true. And I don't want to be affiliated with that kind of base <laughs> business. Uh, so first comes the hot dog, and then comes the West Virginia hot dog, right? And you get into that history a little bit, which which seems a little murky, right? Like, when did we start putting slaw on dogs? The first mention of slaw that I could find was from a 1949 paper 
um, in Raleigh County, and it was about um, the jail. Incarcerated people in the jail liked slaw on their dogs because they could smuggle in a razor blade in the slaw. And I mean, that is, you know, that is another instance where it's like, is this, um, is this kind of a joke column? Um, and there, I think there was a little bit of humor to it. Um, but it is kind of funny to think in this imaginary where, um, that is why people started putting slaw on hot dogs. Um, but you know, Stanton from the West Virginia hot dog blog, um, credits a stop at, um, advertisement in the paper from 1922 that says something like everyone's talking about the stop uh, new dog with slaw. So it may have been, um, popular in the state before that. Um, we just don't know, but there were, you know, traditions of coleslaw and cabbage, um, definitely with German immigrants and Eastern European immigrants, um, who, you know, were living in West Virginia at the time. I don't think I'll ever uh, look at a hot dog the same way again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully that doesn't mean that you won't still enjoy it. I love them even more. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) You've published a book. Authors have to do a certain amount of, uh, you know, self-promotion out there, uh, telling people about the book coming out, letting them know they can pre-order it. You ran into a little bit of controversy on social media uh, over hot dogs. Uh, Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, well, I posted um, a map that uh, my friend Dan Davis from Kinship Goods made for the book, and it's of the hot dog joints that are included in the book, most of them, but not all of them. And I think maybe people just didn't read that that's what it was for. And um, yeah, it it went, I would say, it wasn't quite viral, but it had hundreds of retweets and responses. And people were just so mad that their favorite hot dog joint was not on this map. And, but I ended up, you know, issuing a disclaimer and saying, um, this is not a value statement of the best hot dog joints. It's simply the hot dog joints, some of them that are listed in the book, and, um, you know, it's not, it's not, um, exhaustive by any means and neither is the book. Um, but I would love to see your hot dog map, which I'm serious about. Um, I would love to see, um, you know, a collection of people's, you know, their favorite hot dog joints in West Virginia, um, or the ones where they have memories. You know, I would love to see this collection of hot dog maps. And I think uh, Dan is making some merch for it too, which might inspire more controversy, but hopefully not. (laughs) Or maybe hopefully so, because like you said, like, if we generate enough controversy, this will lead to the creation of rival hot dog maps. And then we just have a whole nother, that's a whole nother chapter in your next book. Totally. Yeah, that would be fun. Emily, I, I just want to say, I feel like the state of West Virginia owes you a profound debt of gratitude for the work and love that you've put into this book. Whether we're talking about your chapter on hot dogs like we have today, or your chapter on the author Brees DJ Pancake, or the chapter on the teacher's strike, or the one on independent pro wrestling, what we've ended up with is a book that you could put in somebody's hands and say, this is why. West Virginia is special. This is what makes us who we are. And I'm just so glad that you've given that to us. 
I, I really appreciate that. And this is sort of a, in a way, it's a love letter back to the state in all its complexity, I hope. Works in a hot dog stand, making them hot dogs as fast as you can. Up steps a cat and hills, don't be slow. Give me two hot dogs, red at the gold. Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia. It's published by the University of North Carolina Press. It's available now. Jade Ruggieri was adopted from China by American parents when she was a year old. She moved to rural western Maryland in eighth grade. She's now a grad student at West Virginia University. For a class project, she made a film about the Asian Appalachian experience. That is, fellow students she found who were adopted from Asia and grew up in Appalachian communities. Here's an excerpt featuring two WVU students. Maylin Sadler from Lincoln County, West Virginia, who you'll hear playing banjo, and Ben McChesney from Morgantown, West Virginia. I think growing up in Appalachia in my early development years really made me like kind of hate my own race. I, I connect with Appalachian people really easily because I've grown up in it. I understand like these issues of poverty, opioids, all this stuff because it's been around me for so long. And I think when you bounce that in with like being Asian American and just like American in general, um, it's, it's like a really weird tightrope. It's a community that I really understand, but at the same time, they don't understand me fully. I've always been like the token Asian guy of like my grade or whatever. I don't think... Uh... I don't think I've ever been in school where there's been another Asian person like in the same like grade as me. As a child, felt so ashamed to be Chinese American. Didn't want to learn the language even though I had someone offering it to me. Didn't want to partake in anything cultural because it's like you feel shame. There's no other way to feel and that I've only been taught to be ashamed of it. Nothing else. It is it is incredible incredibly lonely because there's no one to talk to about like these issues it's like intersectionality doesn't exist in these moments because um, there's no one else experiencing like that to its full degree so I can like I said I can talk to people about these different topics but they'll never ever overlap so it does get extremely lonely to be a part of all these communities but also not I wanted to learn more about this film and about the WVU student who made it. So, Jade Ruggieri, thanks for coming on Inside Appalachia. Tell us a little bit about what led you to make this film. I was adopted when I was one, and my parents have always created wonderful uh, like upbringing for me when I was growing up. Um, however, I'd realized that there were just some like different incidences because of my race being different since both my parents are white that I had never really noticed or experienced until you know I got older more in high school where I kind of looked back and had realized that some of these things weren't as okay or acceptable to say like I remember in middle school I had told my dad that kids on the bus were calling me like wonton and egg roll and sushi roll and with my sense of humor I was gonna say if you're gonna insult me, at least get my ethnicity correct, um, since I'm Chinese. So I've always kind of teetered on, I guess, that identity line of being in inside full Americana, full just that's all I've ever known. And then equally on the outside, that's not what people perceive me as, which is something that kind of creates almost like a dissonance in your mind that makes it 
confusing when you're growing up. I had been in my undergraduate senior capstone project. Originally, I was actually going to be focusing on the um, Asian hate impacts on um, the Asian community restaurant owners. So when I'd gone up to Pittsburgh the first time, I met with this woman that I had called over the phone earlier, and she said she'd be willing to meet, and she still, to this day, ended up being the only one who was willing to meet. I walked down a whole row of restaurants, Asian restaurants, and I went to at least 15 and almost all of them said, all of them said no. Yes. So you do have the, the woman who works at the restaurant. And then you, you have these three fellow college students who feel like, to me, in some ways, the heart of the film. How did you find those voices? We went back to the drawing board. And at that point, I was like, well, I still have that one interview, Alice, that was from the restaurant. What can I do with this direction? And so we decided um, maybe an easier pivot would just be focusing on WVU students. So I'm like, how do I find Asians at WVU? I've never purposely tried to do this. And so then it kind of ended up coming together within the span of a week before the project was due. So I was scrambling to get interviews and I was like, any time and day they told me, I was like, yes, I will make it happen because I was trying to make sure that I was getting this project done, but also still treating it with that amount of respect and um, just, you know, thoughtfulness to create this story that would come together and tell something. And then after I'd interviewed Ben first and after talking with him, I'd realized that he'd grown up in Morgantown his whole life. And after talking with the second student, she also said she was from like West Virginia. And so finally I kind of started catching on and it was a coincidental story that came out of nothing in some ways because I realized they were all from Appalachia and so I kind of on the third interview then started framing it that way and kind of helped use that third student to help set up the rest of it and had realized that not only was this talking about COVID and the pandemic and Asian hate but it went even further into what is it like having these multiple identities of being Asian, Appalachian, and American and not feeling like you belong to all three because that's what I heard from their statements and then I just tried to retell it in a way that kind of wove them all together. Yeah, they're such great voices and and um, you know it's like how sometimes you listen to a podcast just because you like hanging out with the host kind of it's like I like spending time with all three of them I appreciated their perspectives and they were all all very charismatic and and um, and awesome to listen to you got this published through Daily Yonder which covers rural America and that's how I saw it um, it's a national readership there. What kind of response did you hear? Overall, it was a great reception. Even people um, who aren't Asian had responded and said this is really insightful to learn about and to kind of understand because that was one of the biggest things I'd noticed too is, you know, sometimes when you're trying to tell a story and you can't get answers, that is still a story in a regard that um, a lot of Asians in the Asian community, especially if they're more traditional, like first generation or whatnot, that it's not as common to speak out about these issues, which kind of correlates with even the Asian hate crimes, where a lot of the Asian community tends to stay within the community. So it was really exciting to inform other people who have not kind of had conversations like this, because, you know, you're not going to walk up to someone on the street and say, hey, how do you feel about being adopted? Um, but equally, too, it is a story and people have a lot to say about it. Um, what have you learned about through the process of making this, not just the technical details, but how has this informed 
your own experience and how you look at Appalachia. It was really touching and really moving to know that they cared so much about their identities too, of like they're very proud to be Appalachian and equally complex emotions of not being proud to be Appalachian, which I think is something I've noticed a lot in general with um, Appalachia in general. And so it was really cool and eye-opening and equally too, I think it helped me understand how to connect with people, even if it's directly not my story, that I can still at least them make them feel comfortable enough to tell theirs. Yeah, that dynamic of being proud to be Appalachian but not being proud to be Appalachian, I, I think universal is maybe a little bit too strong, but that's a very common sentiment, I feel like. And, and it's a little different. It manifests a little bit different for, for everybody. Jade Ruggeri, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us at Inside Appalachia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share this with other people and hopefully, you know, some of my messages that I said here come across in the video and that people can learn more or maybe even just, you know, enjoy a good story because who doesn't love a good story? That was Jade Ruggeri, a grad student at WVU who made the short film The Asian Experience in Appalachia. Check it out at the Daily Yonder. You can find a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we revisit our 2016 conversation with J.D. Vance, who was then a polarizing author. I was definitely trying to explore this question of the American dream and inequality. And in a very real sense, I was trying to explore the question of why weren't there more kids like me at a place like Yale Law School. Now, Vance is a newly elected U.S. senator. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Few recent American figures have been as polarizing as author-turned-politician J.D. Vance. His book, Hillbilly Elegy, A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis, has been alternately praised and damned. Some people say the book explained the rise of Donald Trump in 2016. And others say Hillbilly Elegy wallows in age-old stereotypes about Appalachia, generalizing about the poor without addressing the root causes of poverty. Hillbilly Elegy sold more than a million copies and was turned into a 2020 film on Netflix that was nominated for two Oscars and two Razzies. Vance went on to enter politics, and this month was elected a U.S. Senator from Ohio. But back in 2016, before Vance got into politics, and even before Donald Trump was elected president, former Inside Appalachia host Jessica Lilly spoke with Vance about his then-new book, Hillbilly Elegy. So why did you write this book? Was this more for, you know, your relatives perhaps in the communities in Appalachia or back in Ohio, or is this for a broader audience, you think, or anybody? Why did you write it? 
you know, you write a book, I guess, for a few different reasons, and there are a couple of reasons that that I I, I thought it was worth uh, it was a book worth writing. You know, one is that I, I don't think a lot of people understand this area or the people who live there. I was trying to under you know put put a human face on a lot of these problems that folks maybe don't understand at all, or if they do understand, they're pretty judgmental about. So I wanted to do that. Uh, so it is it's intended for a broader audience in that sense. I was definitely trying to explore this question of the American dream and inequality in, in a very real sense. I was trying to explore the question of why weren't there more kids like me at a place like Yale Law School, which is when I started writing the book. I, I was just looking around and thinking, huh, there aren't a whole lot of kids here who are like me. I wonder why that is. And I thought that I had some answers uh, that, that were, you know, uh, that could be a little bit more personal and put a little bit more of a human face on a lot of the problems that I see. But, you know, the reason I wrote this book, uh, above all, was so that kids who grew up like I did would pick it up and just think to themselves that, you know, it's okay that they could understand maybe where they came from a little bit better, how their own problems fit into a larger regional context. Because when I was a kid, I just thought that we were all really screwed up. I didn't understand that some of the problems my mom faced were intergenerational. I didn't understand the effects that you know, spiritual and material poverty it had on some of the problems in our family. And so I hope that somebody like me will pick this book up and say, huh, I guess it's okay that I'm the way that I am. And maybe there's a little bit of hope for overcoming some of the issues that I've had in my own life. And if you were describing your childhood and what it was like to grow up in these areas and to grow up in communities that uh, dealing with poverty, how would you explain it? Well, it's pretty tough in a lot of ways, and it's not just tough economically. You know, as I as I write in the book, there were times in my life where I felt like my family had a fair amount of money. Um, not most of the time. Uh, certainly, we struggled with with money most of the time. But there were even sometimes when we didn't, where I felt like you know we we had a pretty decent, at least working class, maybe middle class life. Um, but but I, I you know what I would describe life as primarily as unstable is the word that I would use. We were moving around a lot. I didn't quite understand why when I was a kid. There was a lot of alcoholism. There was a lot of drug abuse in my family. There was a fair amount of of violence and yelling and fighting in my home. And all of these things really took their toll on me. I I, I, I think that it it was a world where, in a lot of ways, you weren't too sure what the next day was going to be like. And when the school bell rang at the end of the day, you didn't necessarily want to want to go home. And so there were, uh, you know, it, it, it was tough in a lot of ways, but it was also really sweet because people really were trying. They were trying to do right by themselves and their kids. They were trying to get ahead. They were trying to, you know, put, put a little extra away so that they could buy their kids some nice Christmas presents. It was just, it was this real strong contrast between people who really were trying on the one hand, but then were really struggling uh, on the other. You've spoken out about Donald Trump and explained why there are so many voters who support Donald Trump for our next president. And perhaps, you know, part of that feeling of being forgotten and not listened to, um, I think you've made those connections as well. Now, you know, while this notion is ludicrous to some voters, it's also ludicrous, you know, on the same token to other people that Hillary Clinton could be president. But um, could you explain to some of our listeners or could you explain that connection on why you think that there is such strong support for Donald Trump in parts of Appalachia? A- absolutely. So 
I, I think that it really stems from this loss of faith in a better future. This is something I write about a lot in the book. People, for very legitimate reasons, frankly, are starting to lose their feeling that the future is going to be better for their children, better for their grandchildren. And it's not just economic. You know, obviously, you know, we talk about the coal mines in Appalachia or the steel mills in southern Ohio. These things are very, very real and legitimate. But there's also a lot of other things that are going on in this community. It's, it's the fact that people are dying of heroin overdoses in areas where, you know, we hadn't even heard of heroin 10 or 15 years ago. It's the fact that families are breaking down, that more and more people are going to jail, and that more and more people are not able to build a better life for themselves. That's the linchpin of the American dream, is that you can have a better future for yourself. And so when those feelings start to go away, it's not unexpected that people are going to get really frustrated. And it's just a question of what sort of frustration, what sort of vehicle that frustration is going to take. And for a lot of people, for a lot of the people that I grew up around, a lot of people in my family, Donald Trump is the vehicle that that frustration has taken. And it's it's not that hard to see the statistics that he is more popular among blue-collar white voters than any politician in a very, very long time. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Everybody has different reasons for supporting Donald Trump. But I think a big part of it is this very real fear that the world around you is not really working, uh, that life is hard, and, and more importantly, that life maybe isn't going to get better in the way that you expected it to. I think that's a big part of the Trump story. Mm-hmm. One of the reviews on printed on the back of your book says, quote, to understand the rage and disaffection of America's working class whites, look to greater Appalachia. In Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance gives voice to this forgotten corner of our country and to the millions of white Americans who feel powerless as their way of life is devastated. And then it goes on. But um, what are your thoughts about that? That's a pretty powerful statement and gives voice to this forgotten corner of our country. Do you, what's your reaction to that? Well, it's very flattering, and I'm, I'm happy, of course, that the reviewer was, was willing to say such nice things. You know, I, 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 there, there's always there's this question about how broadly the lessons of my book apply, and I'm of the, I'm of the view that I think they, they do apply pretty broadly, and I try to back up parts of my personal story with anthropological and sociological evidence where it applies, because it's not just that this is something that's confined to Middletown, Ohio, or to even Southern Ohio, or just to Eastern Kentucky and the migrants out of Eastern Kentucky. I think that this is a much broader problem. A lot of these, these issues that I write about that are very prevalent in my own family. So what I, I think is true is that the people in this part of the world do feel very forgotten. They feel like a lot of folks on um, you know, a lot of folks with money and power don't really care about them, don't really think about them. And that does hopefully come through in the book. I write a little bit about how a lot of folks in my community started to lose their optimism about the future, started to lose their sense that America was a great country, where if you worked hard, you could get ahead. I think that's a really legitimate feeling that's out there that people need to recognize um, and also people need to deal with because it's not the case that the white working class is is super happy with how things are going in the country. I think they're very frustrated and very worried about the future, and that's going to manifest itself in a number of ways, culturally, politically, and socially. 
You also mentioned another phrase in your book that I'm pretty familiar with, too big for your britches. Mm-hmm. I've heard that a few times. <laughs> um, as a, you know, a Yale Law School graduate, do, you know, along those same lines, do you find it tough to hold on to your hillbilly roots? Um, yeah. Do you find it tough to hold on to your hillbilly roots and, and not, or do, is that something that you're concerned about when you're talking about, you know, and relating to your, the community that you grew up with and your family back home? It's definitely something I'm concerned about. And I, I, I worry, I'd say the way it manifests itself the most strongly is that I worry my kids are going to not understand where I came from or understand why, why I love the hills, why I love the people who live there. And I don't know that that's uh, something that you can totally get away from. It's, it's not a fear that I'll totally ever lose. And I, I don't think there's, you know, I, I don't want to be naive because there, there's a way in which I live in San Francisco now. My life has material comforts that I only dreamed of as a child. There's a way in which I, I've definitely become a little bit separated from the people that I grew up around. And I don't want to pretend that that's not the case, but I also think that I can fight against most of that cultural alienation just by continuing to ground myself in where I was from, continuing to visit and spend time with friends and family who still, you know, who still live in eastern Kentucky or still live in southern Ohio. I, I try to do that a lot. And so while, yeah, I definitely worry about losing sight, losing connection with, with, with those roots, I hope that with a little bit of, of real effort and reflection, I can maintain most of those ties because it, it's ultimately the thing that's most important to me. I'll, I'll never feel at home in a place like I feel in, in Southern Ohio, but especially in Eastern Kentucky, because that's just where my family belongs. And that's where I'll always have a connection to. And to be honest, that's where I hope to eventually have a more, you know, finite physical connection to. I I don't plan to spend my entire life in San Francisco. I hope to eventually get back home in in one way or another. And how that happens, of course, is, is up to the fate. But we'll see. Vance leveraged Donald Trump's endorsement to win the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in Ohio. Then, in the November general election... He won with 53% of the vote. He'll take a seat in Washington in January, amid a narrow Republican minority in the U.S. Senate. Take your right hand off the wheel and touch your radio. Put the car in gear. Start out slow. Conservation photography students from Western Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, have been documenting biodiversity on Shenandoah Mountain, a ridge that spans 73 miles between Virginia and West Virginia. And it's home to the Shenandoah Mountain Salamander. Randy Behege with WMRA tagged along with the class and brings us this story. On a Wednesday afternoon in October, I caravaned westward with two cars full of photography students, passing Reddish Knob and parking about an hour's drive into the mountains. 
Eight young adults geared up with cameras, lenses, and bags, and followed Stephen David Johnson into the woods. Johnson teaches photography at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, and his own groundbreaking work documenting Appalachian wildlife above and below the water's surface has been featured in publications including Ranger Rick and the cover of the Nature Conservancy magazine. On this field trip, the students were tasked with documenting plant and animal biodiversity on Shenandoah Mountain, including salamanders. You know, if you're looking for salamanders, the big thing when you're looking at cover objects, especially if they're stones, just lift them straight up. Look carefully to see if anything's there. If it's not, you can put it back. We hike down a trail strewn with acorns towards a mountain spring that eventually becomes the North River, stopping periodically to take photos, identify tree species, and look under rocks. Yeah, if anybody wants to see a different salamander species, these are a kind of streamside salamander, northern two-line salamander. Helping to guide us was Lynn Cameron, co-founder of the Friends of Shenandoah Mountain. Is that a baby or a... Uh, no, that's... Small. I mean, they get a little bit bigger, but that's an adult. Okay. Where is it? Yeah. Right there. Euresia bislineata. Friends of Shenandoah Mountain, which for decades has championed the creation of the Shenandoah Mountain National Scenic Area, currently proposed in Congress, is one of several organizations Johnson has partnered with in the nearly 10 years he's taught this class. The students benefit from the geographical and ecological knowledge of people such as Cameron, and the advocacy groups benefit from the images that the students produce. That's really what makes it conservation photography. Some people have described it as putting your photography to work. So rather than just pretty images, you still want them to be aesthetic images, but you also want them to communicate a story and be put in the service of advocacy for the organizations that are working to protect species and landscapes. One reason we're seeking designation of the Shenandoah Mountain National Scenic Area is to protect the biodiversity that's here. And we're really just learning more about the biodiversity. When we arrived at the spring, in a little hollow in the woods surrounded by golden leaves, I tried my own hand at finding salamanders. Oh, I found one. A little salamander, I'm not sure what kind. Maybe the redback? Yep, redback. I was checking carefully because sometimes the uh, Allegheny Mountain duskies can kind of look really similar, but you can tell by looking at the pattern on their back, the duskies have that kind of upside down V chevron pattern. I love it when they do that little curl. Students Cassidy Walker, Thomas Erickson, and Rebecca Amstutz gathered around to get a few shots and explained how to leave no trace afterwards. So after everybody gets their photos, mm -hmm. basically just push them to the side with like a leaf or something and then cover it back up so I can... Go buddy, go. Go buddy, go. He does not want to move. <laughs> well, now Rebecca's here, so we gotta... Oh, Rebecca, some photos. Go ahead. Some photos. Who, is, who is our friend? This is a redback. And he's being difficult and doesn't want to leave his bed. Another partner with this semester's class is the Shenandoah chapter of the Virginia Native Plant Society, which is headed up by Johnson's wife, Anna Maria Johnson. The chapter is working on a native plant guide for gardeners in the Ridge and Valley region of Virginia, which may end up featuring some of the students' photos. So most of what people plant in their yards that they get from big box stores are plants that look really pretty but are not useful for the insects, the pollinators, and our local wildlife. So that's why there's been a push to have more of the traditional indigenous plants that we expect to have in a healthy ecological system.
Their group shares the common goal of protecting the Shenandoah Mountain region and its many endemic species. We want to make sure that any development and trail work that's done would be located in places that are more appropriate and that would not be located in places where we have rare species of plants and salamanders that can't really live anywhere else. Steve and David Johnson's students have a track record of producing photographs with real-world impacts, such as documenting the proposed path of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which was canned in 2020. So Shenandoah Mountain was part of that because part of the proposed original route would have gone through Cownob Salamander territory. And so some of my students were able to, to locate Cownob Salamanders and actually show that they were still there in that proposed path. It's also an opportunity to just enjoy the natural world. This semester, the students will also learn specialized techniques, such as shooting with underwater equipment and drones. I'm Randy B. Hagee. Coal ash is created when coal is burned for electricity. For decades, much of it's been dumped in unlined ponds and landfills, contaminating nearby water with toxic metals and other dangerous pollutants. Disastrous coal ash spills in North Carolina and Tennessee helped bring about federal regulation of coal ash several years ago. But the rule doesn't apply to dump sites that stopped receiving waste before October 2015. A new report by the Environmental Integrity Project found 96% of coal plants haven't effectively cleaned up coal ash dumps covered by the rule, and they aren't planning to. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel spoke with Abel Russ, co-author of the report. She asked him what the EPA's coal ash rule requires. It's a self-implementing rule, which means every coal plant owner is supposed to follow a series of steps, and it starts with groundwater monitoring. And then if you find contamination, it goes through a series of steps that accelerate up to corrective action or cleanup. And what that means is evaluating all of the options in something called an assessment of corrective measures, which is like creating a menu of cleanup options. And then you're supposed to select a final remedy at the end of that process and start implementing that remedy. And you know, in Pennsylvania, as I understand it, nobody has selected a remedy yet. Nationally, we're seeing most sites aren't there yet. So that's part of the problem that we're seeing. According to the report, how are coal plant operators violating or skirting the rule to avoid cleaning up these coal ash waste sites? One of the most common ways is failing to acknowledge that you're subject to the rule. So at the Newcastle site, West Pittsburgh, for example, it's one of the ones we feature in our report because it's one of the most contaminated sites in the country. They have a huge ash pond that's sitting there with a new ash landfill on top of it, and they're only applying the rule to the landfill on top. So we see that a lot. Owners pretend that a site is not covered by the rule, or they carve a landfill up into different pieces and say only the newest part of it is covered by the rule, when really it's just one landfill and the whole thing should be covered. Then you see a lot of games with monitoring, like where they put the wells. They might put some background wells that are supposed to show clean background conditions. They might stick those right on the edge of a landfill where they're likely to be contaminated by the landfill. So that messes up all the statistics and you don't see evidence of contamination in the downgrading wells because your point of comparison is artificially high. Is the coal ash rule working at all? Yes. And I do want to stress that because there were a few goals of the coal ash rule. One was simply to make data available and that has been incredibly successful. We have a ton of data that we didn't have before. When EPA wrote the coal ash rule in 2015, the agency wasn't sure how many coal ash ponds and landfills were built into the groundwater where it's more likely to leak. It's a huge risk factor. If groundwater is touching the ash, it's gonna constantly 
suck the metals out of the ash and bring them into the environment. Another goal of the coal ash rule was to close leaking and unlined ash ponds. And that's also been pretty successful because there are a lot of unlined ash ponds that are in the process of closing. Some of them have closed, some of them are in the process of closing, and some of them are scheduled to be closed within the next few years. So that's been successful. It's the cleanup part of the rule that's really not working yet. I don't personally put much blame on EPA because I think they crafted a rule that is actually pretty self-explanatory and it makes sense. I think it's the industry that's just not following it correctly that's the big source of the problem. Abel Russ is senior attorney at the Environmental Integrity Project. Dan Chartier, executive director of Utility Solid Waste Activities Group, says the report represents a gross mischaracterization of both the rule and the industry's implementation of the rule, and the facilities are not hiding contamination. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holsoppel. This fall, some states are changing their laws and policies on abortion. This rush of legislation comes in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. In a recent episode of the podcast, Us and Them, host Trey Kay looks at where things stand. He spoke with two women, an abortion rights advocate and an abortion rights opponent, to understand this moment in time. Here's an excerpt from one of those conversations. It's with Emily Walmodorf. She's the campaign director for Planned Parenthood in Morgantown. Womeldorf started working with Planned Parenthood in 2017. She says at that point, the Supreme Court's constitutional right to legal abortion under Roe was fundamental in her life and work. She didn't expect that safeguard could be overturned in her lifetime. Like, even though our state legislature is so hostile to reproductive health care and so hostile to abortion, we did have these safeguards on federal protections. But I think... As I did this work more, as things progressed during the Trump administration, it began to become more and more clear that there could be a reality that we would live in a post-Roe world. Were you surprised with the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade? No. Uh, I mean, the writing was on the wall. And I mean, I think from the moment that Roe v. Wade was decided almost 50 years ago, the anti-abortion extremists have been making it their mission to chip away at bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom and do whatever possible to try to regain control back over people who want to have decision-making power in their lives. So they have been playing the long game on this. It's been happening for decades across our country. And like I said, it didn't happen overnight. And frankly, I don't think we're going to fix it overnight. Can you describe how it was that you heard about the Dobbs ruling? So it's kind of been this buildup for a couple years of like, this could happen. And I think maybe prior to the leak, we were all holding out some little bit of hope that maybe the decision wouldn't overturn Roe or maybe... Um, you know, it wouldn't be a full reversal. And, you know, any version of that decision was not going to be good. But yeah, once we got the leak, it was pretty apparent what the intention was of the Supreme Court. And for the next month and a half or so after that, it was really just preparing for the inevitable, even though I knew it was going to happen, even though we'd had this leak that pretty, pretty well mapped out, like, 
the trajectory of this decision, it was still heartbreaking to hear the actual decision on June 24th. And oddly enough, I was at home alone watching it on my phone, and it still shook me to my core that this fundamental right that I've had for my entire existence, for my whole life, it's always been there, is gone. Like, I get my own fundamental rights stripped from me, but I don't get to process that because I have to go and do my job. So it, it, was, a, it was a bit of a rough day. And, you know, we jump into organizing mode. We jump into, you know, reassuring our supporters and, you know, reaching out to people that we need to talk to. And, and I think at one point my coworker just came over to my house and we said, we're just going to work together today because it just feels too weird to be alone. Has your organization had a plan in the works for a time when there might be a reversal of Roe? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, once the writing was on the wall and once we started seeing these court cases, I think that we have been doing things in our power to prepare for this moment. But there's only so much as an organization that we can do. I can't tell the state legislature what to do. I can't control the decisions that they make. All that we can do is continue to fight, continue to advocate, and do everything in our power to make sure that our patients are protected and that people's voices are heard and that people are not kept out of the public participation process of this issue. That's from the Us and Them podcast episode, Post Row Mountain State. Download the full episode at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or Spotify. Or listen online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, the Greater Kanawha Valley Foundation, and the Daywood Foundation. Hunting and art have long intersected. Some of the earliest cave paintings discovered depict the hunts of early tribes. Hunting-related art continues today. West Virginia artist Brian Aliff has turned his passion for painting the wild turkey into prize-winning, decorative turkey calls. These functional works of art are fast becoming collector's items. But growing up in Bluefield, it took a while for Aliff to think of himself as an artist. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey Kitts followed Aliff out into the woods, where turkeys had been earlier in the day. Aliff picked up a small wooden instrument with a hinged lid, known as a turkey call. With rhythmic cadence, he rocked the lid back and forth, creating a sound that mimicked the yelp of a hen trying to find her flock. With that right there, I mean, that's classic. That's classic turkey. That's Brian Aliff. And that sound? It's from a small wooden instrument known as a turkey call. We're up in the woods where turkeys had been earlier in the day. Brian opens up a bag of his handmade calls. There's an intricate hunting scene painted on each one. They look too pretty to hunt with. He hands me a round one about the size and shape of a snuff can or a drink coaster. The style's known as a pot call. It has a red streaked wooden rim surrounding a crystal disc. I can see the image of a turkey etched on a piece of slate underneath. Old timers call them slate calls because it's all they used to all just make, be made out of slate, and then people started experimenting with different surfaces and stuff. 
Brian puts what's called a striker, a short stick with a flared tip, against the slate, and he makes short jerking strokes. Honestly, it's not the sound that gets me. It's Brian's artwork. One pot call has a small turkey feather under the glass, and it's carefully painted with two gobblers. The detail is remarkable down to the iridescent colors of the bird puffing his chest. I didn't set out to be a call maker. I'm an artist first, and uh, I painted on feathers. The first time I saw those painted feathers, they were on display in a local art gallery. Truthfully, I never called myself an artist ever in my life before I got involved with Gary. Gary is Gary Bowling of Bluefield, West Virginia, who's a nationally recognized artist. He established a gallery and a nonprofit studio in Bluefield that promotes the work of Appalachian artists. I talked with him by phone. Gary says when Brian first showed him his painted feathers. Yeah, I mean, he showed up and he said, what do you think? I said, oh my God. I said, you're more of an artist than I would ever have to Brian didn't have a background in art. He was a steel worker fabricating structures for coal processing plants. Brian is not, has not been to an art institution. He has really not been trained to do what he does. To me, it's the purest form of art that you can be. And Gary points out that Brian doesn't even stiffen or spray the feathers before he paints them and he uses an extremely delicate brush about the width of three eyelashes. So, how did Brian go from painting turkey feathers to crafting turkey calls? Well, he was looking for other places to show his work, and he figured the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention would be a good place to start. He thought about painting pre-made turkey call boxes, but he knew that wouldn't be cost-effective, so... I went to the wood shop and trial and error, and in two months I made up my first dozen calls and entered their decorative call competition down there in a painted box class and uh, got like a second in a national competition. Yep, second nationally. Since then, Brian's become a six-time national champion call maker in the decorative classes, and his turkey calls are collector's items. But to win in the decorative classes, Brian says the calls also have to place high in sounding like a turkey. Back in the woods, Brian pulls out more calls with painted images. There's a paddle box call, a one-sided call, and another called a scratch box call. He says different hunters prefer different sounds. I gravitate towards rasp. I like raspy calls. It's like Tanya Tucker. She's got a little husky rasp in her voice, you know. But it really doesn't make any difference. It's what the turkey wants. <laughs> it's what the turkey likes. Brian hands me a call so I can try it. Hold the pot on the end of your fingers. Okay. Make, make a little circle with it. Don't pick it up. Just make a circle. There's a yelp. You hear it? That's a yelp. You hear the high low? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now she's, now she's yelping 90 miles an hour. Well, it takes practice. And one other thing. You got to put emotion into it, just like guitar players. Great guitar players has got emotion in it. Uh-huh. You know, they're they're in it. And it's it's the same thing with with these calls. 
What Brian does has a lot in common with an instrument maker. He has to know the qualities of woods that produce different sounds. This is where all the magic happens. On a warm spring day, I visit Brian's workshop. His grandfather built it from trees he timbered and milled himself. Using his grandfather's lathe, Brian shapes a pot call. I'm going to thin this side so I'm going to get some slope on it. His grandparents told him the family has native heritage, either Shawnee or Cherokee, just a few generations back. And the native people understood that you don't waste anything. Almost all of the wood Brian uses is local salvaged wood. And with the feathers, you know, to create the art on the feather, it's like a tribute to that animal giving his life for you to have yours. These days, Brian gets orders for custom-made call boxes. This guy wants an old truck that's on his granddaddy's farm in a place that he killed the best bird he ever killed. He wants a scene to kind of depict that. It's custom. It's personalized to that guy. There's just one more call Brian wants to show me. It has a pink camouflage pattern painted on the box, but the lid is screwed shut, and that's because it's a baby rattle that Brian made for his first granddaughter. He says when she gets older, if she wants to go turkey hunting, he'll remove a screw, the lid will hinge, and the turkeys will hear... For Inside Appalachia, Talk and Turkey, I'm Connie Kitts. Hunting season's still open in parts of Appalachia. If you're out hunting this season, good luck. And for folks in the woods this time of year, be careful. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Hot Rise, Valerie June, Jesse Milnes, and Hillbilly Gypsies. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.